The following episode contains adult subject matter, including sexually explicit language and descriptions, and is intended for adult consumption only. Opinions expressed by the subjects of this podcast are not representative of the producers of the series. We're having a good time. You know, we would go to titty bars. You know, every once in a while, we'd bring one of them home. We had tons of money. You know, we were having a good old time. We were getting girls and stuff. We were banging girls left and right. I remember, oh, I, I don't even know if I should, well, either I was getting blown in the backseat or he was, and he was trying to drive, and he was looking back at me as I was getting blown, or I was banging, and I was banging this one girl, and he was in the bed next to me with his girl, and he's like, dude, get off her. Let me show you how that's done. And, like, we switched girls and stuff. But one of the girls was his, like, alleged girlfriend, and he was like, don't blow him. <laughs> he told this girl, don't blow me. I guess he had a connection with her, you know? It's kind of funny, but I don't think we'll get pissed at that. He was married, but he didn't give a shit. But I didn't give a shit either. I was cheating on my first wife, too. Just a couple childhood friends from Delaware County who shared everything with each other. Well, almost everything. I'm Tim Livingston, and this is Whistleblower. Episode 3, Timmy and Tommy. Hey, Tommy. What's up, Tim? Let's start from the beginning. So I grew up in Delaware County, Pennsylvania. I uh, worked for J.P. Morgan for 20 years. Got involved, of course, with the NBA scandal. Went to jail for a little while. And now I'm here with you. We're still in the same house where we interviewed Tim Donahue, but now Tommy's in the hot seat. Tommy, forgetting he was miked, just revealed that Donahue literally crossed the line when it came to game fixing. So, <clears throat> Tim, influencing, he used to tell me that, like, if he saw somebody's foot close to the inline, he'd blow the whistle if it was for our team that we had. Is that influencing or is that fixing, Tim? Close to or on? Was it close? Close. close. If, if it was our guy, it was on. Well, I think that's where it gets interesting, right? I can never say he fixed him. Now, we're talking about where they grew up. Delaware County is a haven for bookmakers and bettors and everything that comes with that. Gangsters, mobsters, everything. And the mobsters in Delaware County, are they very involved in bookmaking? Yes, they are. So they take a cut of what everybody else makes. The mob has their own set of people who are, you know, money makers, and they take bets for the mob. And, you know, they have muscle behind them in case people don't want to pay up. So if people don't want to pay up, they just tell their buddies in the mob and say, look, this guy's not paying, and they go pay him a visit. But the, the regular, you know, bookmaker in Delaware County who decides to take up a book, uh, they just take bets, and they got to go pick up the money themselves. Or they have somebody to go collect for them, but it's nobody in the mob. But once the mob finds out you're... you're your bookmaking, they want to tax you on it. So they want money each month from your proceeds. So Delaware County is like a uh, 
people sometimes describe it as a cult. You know, he's like, you know, if you talk to somebody outside Del County, they'll tell you we're weirdos. But, you know, if you ask me, I love it there. I, I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. But, you know, it's a lot of, like, NBA referees come out of Delaware County. There's a lot of bookmaking in Delaware County. You know, I think I say that there's a lot of mobsters in Delaware County. So I like Delaware County. All different kinds of people, shapes and sizes. When Tommy says a lot of NBA referees come out of Delaware County, or Delco for short, he means a lot of NBA referees come out of Delaware County. Jake O'Donnell, Ed T. Rush, Joey Crawford, Steve Javi, Tom Washington, Mark Wunderlich, Duke Callahan, Ed Malloy, Mark Lindsay, Aaron Smith, Mendy Rudolph, Earl Strom, and Billy Oaks. All hail from the Delaware County area in and around Philadelphia. Oaks was Donahue's uncle, and Donahue's father, Jerry, was a respected college ref. And at the sake of sounding dramatic, while it was never Tim Donahue's dream to be a referee, it was undeniably his destiny. I used to go to a lot of the games with my dad. I saw a lot of the grief that he took out on the floor. So it was nothing that I aspired to be, but I graduated from Villanova, had a couple jobs, was refereeing, you know, local grade school for extra money and started to work my way up a little bit. My mom one day just said, you know, why don't you pursue a career as an NBA referee? And I knew that, you know, there was a lot of people in our area that were successful at doing it. And I felt, to be honest with you, if they could do it, why couldn't I? And with your uncle and your dad, did they love their jobs? Did they love being referees? Sure, I mean, when you talk about being a part of the game in, in a way, running up and down the uh, course with the greatest athletes in the world, being paid very good for, for doing it. In my dad's case, it was a, a second job. He made more money than his first job. What did it feel like when you were a kid watching your dad get booed? About 20,000 people. Yeah, you know, not good. You know, you, you don't really understand that he's out there, you know, doing a job and you don't understand that he's out there doing it the right way. And, uh, you know, it, it kind of bothers you a little bit when you're 12, 13, 14 years old. But, you know, as you grow up, you come to understand it. Timmy and Tommy have been friends since grade school, but became close in high school, where they both played on the Cardinal O'Hara basketball team. To this day, almost 40 years later, they're still best friends and still class clowns. Put this in your pocket. I found that over there. He had it. Timmy had it. I don't have and shit. He goes like this. You had his wallet? You did. Oh. Did you pickpocket him? Did you pickpocket him? Fuck. Tom, don't be stealing Tim, shit. These guys are of my friends. He's nuts. What's the best prank Tim's ever played on You know what? He never played any pranks on me, did you, Tim? No, but there was this one time we were down the shore. We were out of money. It was like a long weekend, so we had no money for food. So we pull up to this lady. He's he, lying. He, bullshit. Pull up to the lady, puts the window down, he asks her for directions. She, she leans over with two pizzas. He grabs the pizzas and I take off. Poor lady fell on the sidewalk and everything. Oh, you guys like high school? Nah, just out of high school. Nice guys. Real classy. And the shenanigans did not end there. Get this man some onions, somebody please. <laughs> Gotta take a shit? Uh -oh. That evening, we went to dinner with Timmy and Tommy. Donahue ordered several Michelob Ultras on ice, and Tommy, after some drinks and a hit or three of his weed pen, needed to use the men's room. This on his stomach. Yeah. We're gonna go in the bathroom and fuck with him to turn the lights out. Oh my God. Donahue, the most excited I've ever seen him, hatched a plan and headed to the bathroom to torture Tommy. 
Donahue grabbed a pitcher of water, threw it into the stall, and with some impressively powerful kicks, started kicking down the stall door. Let me remind you that Tim Donahue is a 53-year-old man. hard to make it out, but Donahue finally busted the door open. Tommy's reaction? He's sitting there on the crapper, rolling his eyes. <sighs> Again? We kicked open the bathroom stall, and he's sitting on the fucking thing, and his I poured a whole bucket of water on him. I took a picture of water. Like, he was sitting there like this, like a little kid taking his shit. Actually, I, I did. I drove up the... The bathroom incident perfectly encapsulates Timmy and Tommy's relationship. Timmy's always been the ringleader, the one kicking down doors. Tommy, quiet, polite, smiling, goes along for the ride and often gets caught with his pants down. But when they sat down in the interview chair, both men changed. Donahue, almost like an elite athlete, got into his zone. He knew where he could score a few points, namely challenging the NBA system as a whole, but his focus was on defense, deflecting, blocking shots. Tommy, he sat down in the chair and completely relaxed. It seemed like all these years later, he was at peace and ready to get a lot off his chest. So I never gambled. I was a street kid, you know, like I just went, went to work for JP Morgan. I went to Westchester University. You know, I was a good kid. And then I just got mixed up with Batista. So I never, I didn't really gamble. I don't like gambling because I don't like losing my hard-earned money. You're not gonna win. If you recall, Jimmy Baba Batista is the money mover who orchestrated the scheme with Donahue and Martino. Jimmy Batista is a childhood friend. We went to grade school together at Holy Cross in Springfield. He's a professional gambler. He came to me in debt, large debt, $7.5 million, back in 2006. And he asked me if he could use my house to conduct his business. I liked Babag growing up. He's a nice guy. He really is a nice guy. He lies a lot. I think his lying progressed and got worse as we got older. I knew that when we were kids, he lost like $60,000 as kids, and he paid back the debt. He got in, in trouble a couple times with you know, gambling and losing large amounts of money, but that was the first time I saw a red flag when we were kids. Delaware County is a haven for bookmakers and bettors. And that's where Batista met this guy, Mike Rainier, who was a big time bookmaker. And Batista got into gambling. You know, when you're a bookmaker, you don't gamble. You don't bet the games or you're gonna lose. But he kept getting into that, kept betting and losing. You can't do that if you're a bookmaker. How involved were you personally in that world? I wasn't involved. So I know about it just because I know people who were bookmakers and who got busted and who went to jail. And I knew Batista back then and I knew what was going on. And then what happened? And then he came into my house with his five cell phones, burner phones, laptop. He was conducting his business. Phone was ringing off the hook. Chinaman was calling all the big professional gamblers, all the big handicappers around the United States would call his phone to put bets in for him. There was a guy in Boston, there was a guy in Florida, Vegas, and the Chinaman. 
The Chinaman, just to be clear, is a renowned mysterious sports handicapper who at the time of the scandal was one of the most, if not the most, successful sports bettors in the world. He designed his own algorithms, as many sports bettors do, but his were the most accurate, generating legendary profits. He was, by all accounts, part Asian, but not Chinese. A couple months later, he asked me about, about Donaghy. So he said, Timmy's in trouble. We got to talk to him. And I said, what the hell is Timmy doing now? Because Timmy would always get in trouble. It was always something he'd call me about, that he did something, now he's in trouble to get, help me get the hell out of this thing. So uh, I figured, all right, let's go. We'll, we'll meet up with uh, Timmy. I really had no idea the reason why until we were on our way down to the Marriott to meet Donaghy is when I found out the reason why Batista wanted me to get Donaghy. And Batista said that Tim was in trouble. Yep. So you had no idea what that meant? No, I didn't know what it meant at the time. On the way down in, in the car, in the Marriott, I said, Jimmy, what the hell's going on? He said, Timmy's betting games through Jack and Cannon and Pete Ruggieri, and there's a word on the street that it's happening. He could lose his job. I said, let's go. As soon as we got down there, we walked in. Timmy's standing there, looked like he saw a ghost when he saw Batista. We sat down, we ordered drinks. Batista held up a napkin with 2K on it. And then right then and there, I knew we were there for other reasons. So they both knew pretty much, and then I knew. And Jimmy said, give me the games. So how did the scheme work? Let's hand that off to Imperioli. Days later, the Donahue-Martino-Batista betting train was roaring down the tracks. Martino was flying all over the country, delivering wads of cash to Donahue. He strapped $20,000 to his ankles to meet Donahue in Phoenix. He took a bag with 15 Gs in cash to meet Donahue in DC. One time he met up with Donahue at the Meadowlands where he had lunch with Donahue and two other refs with 45 large strapped around his waist in a fanny pack. The crew also had code names to communicate which side they were betting on. If Donahue mentioned Martino's brother Chuck, who lived in the Delaware County area, the pick would be the home team. If Donahue mentioned Martino's brother Johnny, who didn't live in Delaware County, the pick would be the visiting team. If Donahue had a lock, he would mention Schmaga, a childhood friend from the neighborhood. Finally, there was Batista's nickname for Donahue, Elvis, the King. Do you remember where you were when Tim told you that he can influence a game six points either way? He told me over the phone. I think he, he was away at some city. I don't remember the city, but I remember him telling me that. How? 100%. It was early in the scheme because, you know, I was questioning him because of his accuracy, you know? And he said, Tommy, if the spread is six points either way or under, we got a good chance of winning. Anything over that, you pick them. Did he ever tell you how he could influence a game? Did he tell me how he was influencing? No, we didn't ever get into that. But he did tell me about the six points either way, but I, I, I knew that that irritated him. He asked him questions about it. So I didn't ask him anymore. That's the kind of person I am. If I know you're annoyed by me, I'm not gonna butt pester you on it. I'm not gonna badger you about it. And we did have a couple of Scots games that Donaghy gave us that didn't win. So of those seven losses that Timmy lost, like I left two losses out of my book because they were Scott Foster's games. 
Whoa, 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 wait a minute. This, Scott Foster? Did a survey, one of those anonymous player surveys, and they asked, which is your least favorite official? And Scott Foster was named as the player's <laughs> least favorite official. What's your opinion of Scott Foster? Terrible. It's a known situation. I think if you ask all the teams in the NBA, everybody has a problem with Scott Foster. You know, every referee has their own personality. He's you just bet. not one you mess with. I never really talk about officiating or anything like that. Scott Foster, man, he's uh, just rude and arrogant. Like, I don't think he should be able to even officiate our games anymore, honestly. Foster started refing the NBA the same year as Tim Donahue, 1994. After more than 25 years, Foster is one of the most senior officials in the league and is trusted with refereeing many of today's most important playoff and finals games. He also, as you just heard, is extremely controversial. Four-time All-Star DeMar DeRozan threw a ball at Foster in the 2019 playoffs out of frustration, and two of the league's best players, James Harden and Chris Paul, have both publicly expressed their disdain for Foster. That's a rare thing for players to do, because not only will they get fined, they'll inevitably have to play in important games refereed by Foster. Prior to the scandal, Foster was Donahue's closest friend in the league. So what does Tommy mean when he says they had two of Foster's games? So I have Timmy as 40 and five. It was actually 40 and seven, but two of the games that we lost were Foster's that Timmy was giving us to throw off Vegas, you know? So it wasn't him reffing the game. Interesting. Right? So, so Timmy would throw Foster's games in there. When the spread moved, it wouldn't be his game that moved. But it wasn't enough. Two games wasn't enough. And then Batista said to me, tell him stop giving us Foster's games. We don't want any more Foster's games. They were so, losers. But I, did, I do know that he would call Scott Foster. When I was in town with him, like in Phoenix and stuff, he would call Scott Foster before the games. I don't know what they talked about. Like he was like, go out on the deck and talk to him out on the uh, balcony. But uh, was Scott Foster involved? I, does Tim say he was involved? I don't know. I don't think, you know, he wasn't involved with what we were doing. If he was involved with something else, like the influencing, like knowing teams or players and coaches and referees that held grudges against one another. And I think that's what Tim means by, and that's why he was calling Scott. But I do know he, he talked to Foster before pretty much every game that I was with him. But, and he would step outside to make these phone calls. He didn't want to make the Called calls. Called him and then stepped outside. I but, and I never heard Scott on the end of the phone either. You know, Tim, so I don't know what the hell. How did you know he was calling Foster? Because I was there. He told me I'm calling Scott Foster. And that was just part of his routine. Yeah, it was part of his routine. And then later I found out when they got his phone records that he was calling him before every game. Tommy was being far more transparent than Donahue, but considering he didn't mention the out-of-bounds example when I asked about influencing games, it was obvious that he was still protecting his best friend when it came to certain aspects of the scandal. Tim Donahue and Scott Foster didn't referee a single game together in the 06-07 season, but when their phone records were made public, it was revealed that the two refs spoke 134 times at the height of the scheme from October 2006 to March 2007. For comparison, the most calls Donahue placed to any other ref during this period was 13. Donahue had several phones, but all the calls to Foster came from the phone the FBI says Donahue used primarily for gambling-related purposes. 
The timing and duration of the phone calls was also suspect. Most calls came immediately before or after a game that Donahue was officiating and lasted less than two minutes. Donahue and Foster both claimed that they constantly called each other to kill time. Killing time in two minute increments is suspicious, but the fact that Tim Donahue, who shared everything with Tommy, always stepped outside to speak with Foster in secret? What didn't you want Tommy to hear? So maybe he was, Tim, you know, who the hell am I to say he wasn't? But we, we got two of Scott Foster's games that lost. We didn't want any more. What was your vibe with those calls? What do you think was going on? I didn't think things were going on that we were doing. No way to it to the magnitude of we were doing. I didn't give it much thought. I'm telling you now only because now I can reflect back and say, hey, shit, he was calling Foster. Because he mentions Foster a lot. And I, don't, I never knew why until he started giving us Foster's games and stuff. Donahue maintains that Foster was an innocent victim and that the constant calls were primarily to glean more inside information. Donahue insists that Foster had no idea that he was betting on games. But that explanation raises several additional questions. Weren't all referees, for the most part, privy to the same inside information? Plus, if what Sean Patrick Griffin argues is true, and all of the betting activity revolved around Donahue's games, what pertinent information could Foster have provided? And the biggest question, if Donahue was constantly pressing him for information, could Foster really have been oblivious to what was going on? Was he that naive? I asked Sean Patrick Griffin for his thoughts on Foster's potential involvement. Here's what he had to say. Obviously, like anybody who was trying to research the scandal, I did look into other referees and especially into Scott Foster just because of the phone records. I think it's been widely assumed that Foster fixed games just like Donaghy because they were talking all the time. Batista's argument, and I agree with Batista on this, is that he he's just assumes that what was happening, Donaghy was giving Scott Foster the pick on Donaghy's game for that particular day. That doesn't excuse Foster if he was actually betting on another referee's game, but I, that's, that is more likely than him actually fixing games. And put it this way, for the games it's believed where Donaghy and Batista were betting on Foster's games, there's no evidence that he fixed game outcomes. And in fact, to the contrary, they were a loser. People familiar with this story have often pointed to Foster's phone records as an indication of his involvement in the scheme. But Griffin found no evidence that Foster was fixing games with Donaghy. But the idea that Foster was betting on Donahue's games? That's a new theory. The fascinating part about the Scott Foster angle is that the public not only gets it wrong in the idea that they don't realize he may have been copying the bets on Donaghy's games, it also opens up other avenues about how many people Donaghy was betting with. We know he was betting with Batista. That was the scandal. What the public didn't catch is that in the plea deal, he admits to actually betting with Jack and Cannon through then too. So he's betting with Batista at the same time and King Cannon. We suspect he's also betting with Scott Foster. And then you go, okay, well, how many other people may have been involved in this? And the, the truthful answer is we don't know. The aspect that bothers people about Scott Foster, of course, is, is that they spoke so much. The phone calls and the text messages were crazy. Uh, among two middle-aged guys who are NBA referees is just unnatural. So predictably, people are suspicious. And, uh, you know, and it makes sense, of course, that they were close friends. 
And in that regard, it makes sense that Donaghy would, of course, defend Foster and say that he had nothing to do with this. But people are not going to stop being suspicious for the reasons we just said and because we have no idea what the FBI looked into in that regard. And the NBA has never talked about this. Unfortunately, when it comes to Scott Foster, we're just left with a bunch of questions. It's assumed Donahue was giving picks to more people than just Batista and Concanon, but we'll probably never know if there were two, five, ten, a hundred people placing bets for Donahue. We also can't be sure of the financial arrangements Donahue had with anyone, including Batista and Martino. Donahue says he made $30,000 in the season they worked together. Tommy says he paid Donahue closer to 100000 Batista says it was closer to 250000 All we know for sure is that when Tim Donahue refereed a game, money was flying all over the place. If you had to estimate how much money was moving. Millions of dollars each game, 100%. Yeah, right? I got nothing. <laughs> I got the red-eyed poker. What was Tim like throughout this time? Was he... Funny. Happy. You know, we didn't think we were going to get caught. We were having a good time. He used to love what I used to We used to have a ball. That initial meeting that you guys had, did Baba threaten Tim in any way? <sighs> so not in front of me. I, I didn't threaten Timmy, of course. But Timmy says that Batista threatened him. I didn't see it. If it happened, it happened when I wasn't there. That's all I really got to say about that, Tim. I, I got you. But during the course of the scheme, yeah. Tim wasn't fearful for his life. He says he was, but I don't know if he was. Based on your guys' parting, though, he was if he was fearful, he was living it up to the last last. Right, round. right. Why was he fearful, right? If he was living it up. What do you guys, what does your friendship consist of now? What do you guys talk about as, at this point in your life? Yeah, we talk about the stuff we used to talk about, our families, and he's helping me with my son. My son has a, uh, a problem. He's three and a half, he's not speaking yet. So Tim helps me with that. My son loves Tim. So, you know, just like family life, the way it used to be. I want to talk about your book, Inside Game, what inspired you to write it? Believe it or not, it's Timmy that inspired me to write it. I said, Tim, they're going to relaunch your book. I said, great news. And he said, Tom, you're a dumbass if you don't finish yours. Finish yours. Forget about mine. So I wrote the book from the beginning to the end. Yeah. So I did it for my son. My wife. My family. Give him something to remember me by. That's why I did it. That's it. I'm glad it's done with. Yeah, feels good. Can't wait to get home. I wasn't expecting Tommy to get emotional. Whatever Donahue is doing to help Tommy with his son, it clearly means the world to him. He came down to Sarasota for Timmy, but he doesn't want to be here. He wants to be in Delaware County with his wife and his son. Tommy isn't telling us everything. He's still hiding some things, things his best friend likely asked him to hide. But he's not limited to company lines like Timmy. And now that we're about to leave Sarasota, I can't stop thinking about what Donahue is hiding and why. Does he not want to disappoint his father, an honorable referee? 
Did he promise other refs that if shit ever hit the fan, he'd take the fall? Did he strike a deal with the feds? Is there some sort of legal barrier between Tim Donahue and the truth? Ultimately, it's hard to believe a lot of the things Donahue is telling us. At the start of this episode, Tommy says they had a lot of money, but Donahue says he only made $30,000 in his season with Batista and Tommy. Donahue says he wanted to quit the scheme, that he feared for his life and his family's life. But Tommy says Donahue was fun during their run together and that he never heard a threat. That night, Tommy crashed the house that we rented. We gave him the master bedroom and Doug and I drove him to the airport at 4 a.m. the next morning. Half asleep, Tommy and I started talking. You ever think about, did you ever try to get Batista? I haven't. It's next to impossible. Yeah, I mean, that's what I figured. He wants 100,000 bucks to do anything. Yeah, do you think he would? He sold his life rights for a dollar, allegedly. But we know it's more than that. And that's when he wrote his book. Well, he had that Sean Patrick Griffin write it. And the guy, like, argued with me and Tim for years after we got out of jail that we were lying. Batista was telling the truth. When the facts were that both of them were lying. Lying about what? About about the fact that... Okay, so Batista... The big lying point was that Donaghy was threatened by Batista. The fact of the matter is, he wasn't. But Tim asked me to back him up, you know, on that. So I always have to say, I never threatened him, but I don't know what happened with with Timmy and Batista when I wasn't around. But I, I was never not around. Tim will be pissed if he heard that. Whistleblower is a production of Tenderfoot TV and Whistleblower Media in association with Cadence 13. Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay are executive producers on behalf of Tenderfoot TV. Myself and Doug Matica are creators and executive producers on behalf of Whistleblower Media. Our co-executive producer is Colo Casio. Our lead producer is Alex Vespasted. Co-producers are Mason Lindsay, Matt Keller, and Paul Kasheri. Sound design, mixing, and mastering by Cooper Skinner. Original music is by Makeup and Vanity Set. Cover design and illustration by Mr. Soul. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum and Grace Royer at UTA, Ryan Nord in the Nord Group, Beck Media and Marketing, Station 16, Paul Anderson and Nick Pinella of Workhouse Media, Max Hacker and John Bagakis, the teams at Tenderfoot TV and Cadence 13, and to Michael Imperioli. Check out his new podcast, Talking Sopranos, wherever you get your podcasts. Lastly, thank you to Liz Livingston and Tali Ravid for your invaluable insights and for never letting us give up on this story. For more information about the podcast, visit whistleblowerpod.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, five stars preferably, and review. Thanks. Thanks.